That's what we're going to do at the end of the service too, a great, adore God's grace. Let's turn in our scripture reading to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and we read this in connection with Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I want to read Psalm 51, especially um, because of verse 5. This is the confession of David, the child of God. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's read the whole psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. And blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit, or thy willing spirit, a spirit that is willing. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 3 of the Catechism. We'll read the whole Lord's Day, but our focus is especially going to be question and answer 8. Lord's Day 3. 
Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then, from where then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, so far in our treatment of Lord's Day 3, we've had two sermons. In the first sermon, we looked at question and answer 6, and we looked at God's good creation of man. God created man good and upright. And in the second sermon, we looked at question and answer 7, and we looked at the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise when, as we saw last time, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've looked at these two topics in order to explain where our total, totally depraved sinful natures come from. God is not to be blamed for creating man this way. We did this to ourselves. The blame for our misery falls entirely on ourselves. That's what we've seen. Now this morning, we come back to what we started looking at in Lord's Day 2. And now, this morning, we dive a little deeper into the subject matter. This morning, we look at the extent of our sinfulness. Just how sinful are we? Just how bad is our inability to keep God's law? And the answer is, we are totally depraved. That is, outside of Jesus Christ, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are such, after the fall into sin, that we are totally depraved, wholly incapable of doing any good, and inclined to all evil. We want to dive a little more deeply into this subject this morning because this doctrine is absolutely fundamental for understanding the gospel. All the foundational truths of the gospel are related to what we look at this morning and in a certain sense are dependent upon this truth of total depravity. Our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do is shaped by our understanding of total depravity, our understanding of regeneration and what has happened to us through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is shaped by our understanding of total depravity. And our understanding of the daily life of conversion, the new man fighting against the old man, the spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, that's all shaped by under, our understanding that this depravity 
still cleaves to us. If we lose an understanding of this truth of total depravity, we won't even be able to understand what our lives are as Christians as we find this struggle within us to walk in God's ways and as we find this battle against the old man of sin within us and and as we discover all manner of sin within our own members, our our own flesh. This doctrine is eminently practical. It's this doctrine of total depravity that explains in part why we're looking forward to infant baptism next week Sunday morning. Why we're going to baptize what might look like a a very innocent-looking baby. But that baby needs the washing away of her sins. It's this doctrine of total depravity that enables us to understand the irresistible power of God's grace. And we understand why it's irresistible. And it's this doctrine that helps us to understand God's unconditional love towards us. It's a right understanding of this doctrine of total depravity that even strengthens our assurance as believers that that since I am a believer, I do believe in Jesus Christ, that means that I am an elect child of God. I have been redeemed because the only explanation for believing is that this is who I am. It's this doctrine of total depravity that helps us understand the world in which we live a world that is bounding, uh, abounding in iniquity, a world very similar to the world before the flood where every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. There's a reason this doctrine is treated in the first section of the catechism. It is this doctrine that sets the stage for the glorious deliverance that God gives His people in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. We take as our theme this morning, the total depravity of our sinful natures. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the truth of it, what this is, total depravity. Second, we look at the Christian's confession of it. And then third, we look at the good fruits of knowing it. As I said in the introduction, the question before us this morning is the extent of our sinfulness. God created man good and after his own image, but we fell into sin through the disobedience and fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now the question is, how bad was that fall into sin? What is the extent of our sinfulness? And in order to answer that question, there are two things we want to consider in this first point this morning. First, what we need to understand is this, that the issue before us this morning has to do with our natures, our sinfulness, and the extent of our sinfulness has to do with our natures. Our sinfulness is a sinfulness that adheres to and qualifies our nature. And so we have to explore that. That word nature is not a word that is used specifically in question and answer 8, but it is found elsewhere in the catechism. If you look at the top of page 4, Question and answer five, especially answer five, in no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And then question and answer seven, whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? Answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. So the catechism uses that term nature. What is 
our nature. Well, when the Catechism speaks of nature, uses that word nature, the reference is to who we are, to what we are as human beings. Really, the word nature can be understood as synonymous with the word being. We are human beings. We have a human nature. This is how I have taught the Catechism students. God is a divine being. God has a divine nature. Angels are angelic beings. Angels have the nature of an angel. The nature is what makes you who you are as a human being. So, so our nature, our human nature, refers to who we are in our body and in our soul. Our nature includes our body and then in our soul, it includes our mind and our will and our emotions. And I would even say we can include our heart as part of our human nature, that which makes us human. We have a human heart. We are persons who have a human nature, just as God is three persons dwelling in the divine nature, the divine being. So we are persons who have a human nature, so that we have a human body and we have a human soul. We have a human will, human emotions, a human intellect. That's our natures. We are body and soul. And again, I would say we can add, and, and maybe even we ought to add, I think we, we should, but I, I don't want to confuse us, but we can include the idea of our hearts. At the very center of our being, that's what our heart is, the very center of our being. Emphatically, where we are in the catechism, the word nature refers to who we are as we come forth from our parents. And that's an important point also to understand. We get our natures from our parents. In body and soul, we are conceived and brought forth from our parents. Our parents are human beings. They have human natures. And when they bring forth children, the children they bring forth are also human beings that have human natures. Who we are, body and soul, is derived from our parents. Now the reality is, our natures are sinful. We have sinful natures. Our parents have sinful natures. And when they brought forth children, they brought forth children also that have sinful natures. And all this goes back to Adam and Eve. We saw this last week. Adam and Eve were created upright in their human natures. They were sinless. But through their fall and disobedience, they lost the image of God. They took on the opposite, the image of Satan, and their natures became corrupt. Their natures became sinful. And all the children who are conceived and who come forth from Adam and Eve also inherit a nature that is sinful. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But the human race in Adam also inherits a nature that is sinful. Now what does that mean? That our natures are sinful. That our natures are corrupt. Well, it means that in body and soul, with our whole being, we are under the power, influence, and rule of sin. Our natures, body and soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, our hearts, came under the power, influence, and rule of sin. That's what happened to Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. Spiritually, they died. In their 
sin. They gave themselves over to a mind that rejects God. They fell under the power, influence, and rule of sin. And when they had children, they passed that sinful, corrupt nature to their children. So that all of us who have Adam and Eve as our first parents also have natures that are under the power, rule, and influence of sin. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and emphasize that point. Our depravity, our sinful nature is a depravity. It is a sinful nature that finds its origins not just in me, individually, who I am as a person, but it finds its origins in Adam and Eve. Let me say this another way. Our depravity is a reality that finds its origins not just in the individual man, but in the human race as a whole. This is important to recognize if we're going to understand our sinfulness. Because what many do today, and many, uh, many in the Christian community will attempt to do is this. They will attempt to limit the sinfulness of man to the individual acts that we commit. And they don't apply it to the nature of man. This is Pelagianism. This is, for example, what the Pelagian does. He teaches that sin is merely in the deed itself, merely in the external act. So the Pelagian is one who teaches that man is basically good, but he does bad things. Maybe he does many bad things. Maybe he does horrendous things like murder someone or or rape someone. And then maybe then when a person gives himself over to these sins, maybe then he becomes sinful in his very nature. Maybe. Because he, he, he pushes himself into that direction. But they will say, the way that all men and women start out is like this. They are born innocent. And if a person becomes sinful in his nature, well, that's his own doing. And then they will say, if only man receives a proper education... Maybe he has good examples and mentors to follow. Then he can learn to live an upright and morally blameless and virtuous life. The reason we do bad things, the Pelagian says, is because we have a bad upbringing or we have a a bad education or uh, a bad example or a disease of the mind or a sickness of the body that has directed us to go in this direction of misbehaving and doing wicked things until finally a person just gives himself over to his sin But in the end, they will say, a man's sinfulness needs to be limited to the individual acts he commits and not to who he is as a human being. Because as a human being, he starts out basically good. This is a common way of thinking today. This is why some, not all, but this is why some will refuse to baptize infants and instead practice believer's baptism. Because what they teach is this. Not all, but what some use as their explanation is this. Infants are basically good. All children are born innocent. And if a child dies before it reaches the age of discernment, it automatically goes to heaven. Infants don't need the washing away of sins. But when a child reaches the age of discernment, then he needs to exercise his goodness, his free will, and choose either to believe in Jesus and get himself saved, or he sins and he rejects Jesus, and that's the point when he makes himself worthy of punishment. 
And that's a complete confusion of things in multiple ways, but the point I'm simply making now is this. We must understand that sin is not merely in the act. Our sinfulness is something that adheres to our natures. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. We read it, Psalm 51, verse 5. That was David's inspired confession about himself. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And what does that mean? Well, children, young people, it doesn't mean this, that the act in which David was conceived was a sinful act. David is not saying that his mother was sinning when David was conceived by his parents. Rather, what David is saying is that from the very moment of his conception, from the moment he was first in the womb of his mother, his spiritual condition was this. He was totally depraved. He was conceived and brought forth as a sinful being with a sinful nature. And the reason David confesses that in this psalm is because he's confessing his grievous sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And David is saying, this is not just something I did. This isn't just a sinful act I carried out, but this is who I am. David is confessing not just his sin, but his sinful nature. David is referring here to the condition of his entire human nature. So our sinfulness is a sinfulness that adheres to and qualifies our nature. We are conceived and born in sin so that all children of Adam have natures that are sinful. That's the first thing we need to look at. We are human beings brought forth from our parents as those who have bodies and souls under the rule, power, and influence of sin. Understanding that first thing, the second thing we need to consider in this first point of the sermon is this. What is the extent of that sinfulness? We've seen that our natures are sinful, but what is the extent of that sinfulness that dwells in my human nature? The Catechism puts the question this way. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil? And beloved, this is not just a question that we're contemplating this morning as those who are Protestant Reformed. This is a question that has been repeatedly dealt with throughout the history of the church. Augustine faced this question against Pelagius and answered it biblically. Luther answered this question against the Roman Catholic Church and answered it biblically. Calvin faced the question and answered it biblically. The Synod of Dort faced this question in the face of Arminianism. This is really the, the center of the battle in church history. The Synod of Dort faced this question and answered it biblically. And all of these men faced the question in the context of false teachers who were rejecting the biblical answer. So what is the extent of our depravity? Are we really prone by nature to hate God and hate our neighbor? The confession of the Reformed faith, the biblical faith is this. Indeed, we are. We are, whole, we are so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil except 
we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Holy, entirely incapable of doing any good. That's the Reformed Confession. And inclined to all evil. That is, that is our bent. That's the direction that we face. If you take any movement, any step forward, that's the path you walk in. Left to yourself. The Belgian Confession puts it this way. Article 15. We believe, this is a, a longer quote, we believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and an hereditary disease wherewith infants themselves are infected even in their mother's womb, and which produceth in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. Nor is it, this, this nature, this sinful nature, by any means abolished or done away by baptism, since sin always issues forth from this woeful source as water from a fountain. Notwithstanding, it is not imputed. It is not legally held to the children of God unto condemnation, but by His grace and mercy, our sinful nature is forgiven us. Not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh, desiring to be delivered from this body of death. Wherefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians who assert that sin proceeds only from imitation. Ephesians 2 verse 1 uses this language, we are dead. We are dead in sins and trespasses. But what does that mean? Does that mean that you simply do nothing if you're spiritually dead because you're dead? No, but the reality is, although we are spiritually dead, and this might sound strange, we are very much active in that spiritual deadness. And the point is this. Total depravity is not merely a loss of the image of God. Total depravity is not merely being unable to do the good, but it means being inclined to all evil. So that when Adam and Eve died spiritually, they were still human beings, they still had human natures, they still had an intellect, still had a mind, still had a will, still had a body, they had a powerful mind, a sharp mind, they had real emotions, they had a powerful will, but the reality was this, Adam's knowledge did not simply change and become a lack of knowledge, but it became a love of the lie and a hatred for true knowledge. Adam's righteousness did not simply change and become a lack of righteousness, but it became a love of iniquity, doing that which is unrighteous. And Adam's holiness did not simply change and become a lack of holiness, but it became a love for corruption, devotion to sin, so that in his whole being, in his entire nature, Adam came under the power, influence, and rule of sin. He presses his whole being into the service of sin. To use a figure which I think is helpful, and maybe we'll hear this again because it's, it's a good one, I think. Think of man's human nature as a box of apples or a crate of apples. 
And the apples in that crate represent man's human nature. So that one apple represents man's body. Another apple represents man's mind. Another apple represents his intellect or or his will. Another apple represents his emotions. And all those apples represent man as a whole. All his faculties. All that make up who man is as a man. Well, some people will teach that in that box of apples, every apple is touched by rottenness. Meaning this, that the fall into sin impacted and affected every faculty, every component of man's nature, so that every part of our nature is touched by sin. But what they're missing, what they don't teach is this, that every apple in that box of apples is not just touched with sin, so that if you would cut out the bad part, there's still some good. No, but every apple in that box is entirely rotten. That's the truth of the matter. So that they teach man can still do some good. He can still will the good. He can choose to do the good. But that's not total depravity. Total depravity is this. Every apple in that box is entirely corrupted by rottenness. That's our nature. Outside of Christ, in the fall of Adam, we have no good in ourselves. We still remain humans. But as Scripture says, there is none that doeth good, there is none that seeketh after God. The carnal mind is not just partially at enmity with God. No, the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's our sinful nature. In body and soul, outside of Christ, we are entirely under the rule, power, and influence of sin. And it is this nature, totally depraved, in which we cannot do any good or desire to do any good, it is this nature that we are born with and that we give our children. That's the truth of the matter. The total depravity of our sinful natures. This is what we confess. This is what we confess, first of all, about the whole human race in Adam. And this is also what we confess about ourselves personally. First, we confess this about the whole human race. And we confess this in the face of many objections. Perhaps the main objection we might face when we confess this is the objection that sounds like this. But what about the amazing things that people do? What about the marvelous gifts that people possess? What about even the helpful deeds that they do? Helping that elderly woman cross the street. Don't Isn't that good? Don't these things testify against what you're teaching right now? Well, there's no denying that the members of the human race have some amazing gifts. There are people on the earth whose intelligence would simply astonish us. There are people who have amazing gifts, scientific gifts, artistic abilities. Maybe you hear them play the instrument, and and you clap when they're done. It stirs the soul. I think of the three sons of Lamech, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. They had some exceptional gifts. Not only are there these things, but but there also seems to be within man a, a certain regard for virtue and for good order in society. There are those who who run into a burning building in order to save their fellow man. Isn't that a good work? 
When a loved one dies, maybe your unbelieving neighbor sends you a card in the mail or visits at the funeral. Aren't, aren't these good works? Well, the beautiful thing is, beloved, that our Reformed confessions interact with these things. They acknowledge these things, uh, um, the good gifts that men and women possess. And the confessions interact with these things because this is exactly the argument that the Arminians were using 400 years ago to attack the doctrine of total depravity. So the canons of Dort treat these realities. And what the canons teach us is that sinful man does have the glimmerings of natural light. Notice he doesn't have the glimmerings of spiritual light, but he does have the glimmerings of natural light, referring to man's ability to distinguish between good and evil. Man knows what is good and what is evil. Man knows that it is good to do the good and it is evil to do the evil. But what do the canons say about these glimmerings of natural light? Well, the canons say that even with regard to those glimmerings of natural light, sinful man is incapable of using those glimmerings aright, even in things natural and civil. And instead, sinful man uses these glimmerings of natural light in the service of sin. They use these glimmerings of natural light for their own benefit, their own profit. The natural man knows, I must not sin too much, or lie too much, or steal too much, or cheat too much, because then I make life difficult for myself. And so he's very calculated in the sins that he chooses to do. He's constantly trying to glean the most satisfaction from his sin, indulging himself in, in the lifestyle that he wants to live, while trying to strike that perfect balance so that he tastes as little as possible, at least in this life, of the earthly of the bitter consequences of his sin. He still has some regard for virtue. He knows that it's not good for a society to be in anarchy. That, that affects me, right? Then I, I can't live the way that I want to live. But even with all these things, he does everything he does from that principle of hatred against God and the neighbor, ultimately, and, and it's ultimately selfishness, love of self. That's the canons of Dort. Heads 3 and 4, Article 4. The Catechism gives us this answer in our Lord's Day this morning. The Catechism says, A man may appear to do all kinds of noble deeds. He may help out his neighbor. He may give to charities. He might visit the sick in the hospital. But the fundamental question is this. Is that man regenerated? Or is he not? That's the issue. Because if he is not regenerated, there isn't even the possibility that what he does may be considered a good work. But you see, regeneration changes things. Because in regeneration, what Jesus does is he enters into the very center of our being. And he establishes his rule on the throne of our hearts. So that in our hearts, we're given new hearts, the Bible says. So that in our hearts, the rule, power, and influence of sin is dethroned. And Jesus is enthroned. And now, out of my heart, I live out of Christ. And as I live out of Christ, and as I live under the rule of Christ, I can begin to make a beginning 
I can make a beginning of pressing my body and pressing my soul, pressing my will, pressing my emotions, my intellect into the service of God. And that's what my life as a Christian is all about. This struggle between my old man and my new man. The struggle between the rule of Christ and the rule of sin. And I have that if I am regenerated. But outside of regeneration, outside of being brought to spiritual life, all I am is an individual under the complete power, rule, and influence of sin. That's the human race left to itself. That's the Christian's confession regarding the human race. And now the Christian goes further, and he confesses this, not just about the whole human race, but about himself also, personally. The Christian confesses, this is who I am. By nature. This is what I am of myself. And, and this is not just who I was, but in a very real way, this is who I still am. Left to myself. What the Christian needs to say is this. This is not all that I am. But this is still a very real part of who I am today. This is not all of who I am because I also have been regenerated. I received that new man in Christ. I have a new heart. Christ rules at the center of my being. But what the Christian must confess is this. This is part of who I am because I still have that old man of sin in me. That sinful nature. In a sense, we could even say this. I hope this is helpful. I think it's helpful for me. It is helpful for me. We could say this. I have two natures. There's who I am under the rule of Christ, my new nature, but there's also who I still am under the rule of sin, my old nature. In... in in my flesh, uh, in my body and soul. And it's only as I live out of my heart, out of my new heart, that I, I can use my body and soul aright. But, but apart from living out of my heart, yeah, that's who I still am, body and soul. I can do good works because I have the new man in me. God has regenerated me. But I also do evil works because I still have my sinful nature. And that old... That sinful nature doesn't get any better. It doesn't improve. It's still totally depraved. And from that point of view, I am still totally depraved according to my old man of sin. And this reality is true to your own experience, beloved. Because you and I, we find in ourselves, even against our own wills, we find thoughts that are abominable. We have arising within us desires that are clean contrary to the holiness of God. And we say things and we perform deeds that are scandalous. And we do it as Christians. I still have this old man of sin. It's there. It's active. And it always wants to get that upper hand in my life. It always wants to overcome the new man and dethrone him. And this is my grief and this miser my misery. The good that I would. I want to be perfect, but I don't do it. I find within myself another law so that I have to say in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. 
This is the warfare of the Christian life. The spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. That I still have, this totally depraved sinful nature, is also proved by the fact that this is exactly what I pass on to my children. When did I have my children? Did I have my children when I was an unbeliever or after I was regenerated? Well, for the sake of argument, let me say that I had my children after I was regenerated. All right? But when my child was conceived and born, what did that child receive from me? Did that child receive from me the new man? Or does that child receive from me the old man of sin? Well, my child receives from me that old man of sin. That's all I can give my child. And the fact that I do give that old man of sin, that sinful nature to my child, reminds me, it tells me, that that old man of sin is still very much a part of me, even though I am a regenerated child of God. And then I see it in my child. My child is growing up, and my child is struggling with many of the same sins that I struggle with. My child certainly is not perfect. Neither is my child neutral. He is stubborn. She is foolish. And I need to confess, there's nowhere else that my child got that from than from me. And the reality is, that's all I gave my child. Oh yes, my child might have all kinds of gifts and abilities and, and good genetics, but the reality is, except for God's powerful grace, all those gifts, all those good genetics, maybe that come from me, they're corrupted by being pressed into the service of sin. That's what I give my child. And the point is, I have that old man of sin. And of myself, that's all I am. And then thinking about next week, beloved, we hear these things. What a, what a blessing and a privilege it is to look forward to bringing our children to the front of church for baptism. We're bringing them to the front of church not in order that we might boast in anything of ourselves. The very opposite is the case. I'm the one who brought forth this child in sin, a child who is in need of a cleansing. But at the same time, I bring this child to the front of church for baptism because my gracious God and Heavenly Father says, I will not only be your God, but I will be the God of your children. And God says, I have not only regenerated you, but I will also, I, I do regenerate your children also. You bring them forth in sin. You bring them forth as children worthy of damnation. But this is my goodness to you. This is my covenant with you. I will be your God and the God of your children. We understand, not head for head, but the promise still stands. I will be your God and I will gather from you more who I will make, my children. I will, will be your God and the God of your children through the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that an awesome truth? God comes down to us and says, bring me your children. Bring them to the front of church for baptism. Raise them up in the fear of my name. Because just as I saved you and it was all of me and it was all my doing, so I am also pleased to save your children. And there too, you and they both, you will all see that it's all of me, God says. And we look to God, and we look to God alone to save our children 
as he also saved us. That's our confession regarding ourselves personally and our children. Well, confessing this truth of total depravity has good fruit. Knowing this doctrine, spending time on this this morning is good. The good fruit is, first of all, this, that we are confessing the truth. I've got five things here. The first thing is we're confessing the truth. We are confessing a truth clearly taught in Scripture. We're confessing a truth that is foundational for understanding the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're confessing a truth that rings true to our own experience. It it makes sense. And that's no surprise because the Bible makes sense with our experience. But that, first of all. Second of all, the good fruit is this. This truth of total depravity keeps us from despair. And that might sound strange, but that's the way it is. Because the reality for you and the reality for me is this. We do see within ourselves such thoughts and desires and feelings that are abominable. There are words that escape my mouth sometimes that are shameful. There are failures to do what I ought to do. And I find within me this desire to sin. And then maybe sometimes you are asked and I'm asked, who really am I? And Maybe we're tempted to ask, am I even a Christian? Am I really what I confess myself to be? Can I truly be a born-again child of God and still do and still say what I have done and what I have said? And then we remember this truth of total depravity. And we can say, just because there is this sin in my members, it does not prove that I am not a born-again child of God. No, but I also see within myself the fact that I hate this sinful nature. I repent of it. I grieve over my sin and this sinful nature. And I say, oh, wretched man that I am, I want to be delivered from this body of death. And the very fact that I plead with God to turn me and to sanctify me and change me more and more, that's rather a sign that I am a child of God, that I am a born-again Christian. Because there's no other explanation for these things than the fact that I have been raised to spiritual life again. And that's encouraging. This is God's work. This is Him applying the benefits of the cross of Jesus Christ to me. And I witness it. So knowing the truth of total depravity and then seeing God's good fruit in us, putting these two things together keeps us from despair. It gives us the right perspective of who we are. Third, the good fruit is also this. We learn to be always on guard against ourselves. Because we know there's this old man of sin, this this depravity that still dwells within us. And, And if we feed it and we entertain it and we give place to it, it's going It's going to grow and take over. Think about that. How foolish as Reformed Christians to confess that we have totally depraved sinful natures and then we go on and live our life feeding that totally depraved sinful nature by by the things we watch, the things we look at, the books we read, the, the behavior that we give ourselves over to. We know we're hurting ourselves. We're knowing, we're know, we know we're feeding that old man of sin. How foolish! When we know better, 
Forsake that old man of sin. Be on guard. That's what this truth and confessing this truth is good for. Fourth, the good fruit is this. We fly to Jesus for forgiveness. We humble ourselves before him and we find our hope and our strength only in him. We have our strength in him. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then fifth, the good fruit is this. We humble ourselves before God and we give him all the glory for our salvation and for everything good and praiseworthy that is in us and that comes forth. Whatever I am, that is glorious. And you know, beloved, there are things about you that are glorious. You are a new creature in Christ. You are. You are a vessel of mercy. Through your life, God is shining forth His beauty. There are glorious things about us. Exalt in yourself. Well, not exalt in yourself. Exalt in who you are as a new creature, as a regenerated child of God. Who you are as a Christian is nothing less than a miracle of grace. And who our children are as regenerated children of God is, is nothing less than a miracle of grace. But then whatever you are that is glorious, it's due to God's grace. And then praise Him for it. And whatever you see in your children that is glorious, you see their sorrow over their sin and true repentance. You see them confessing their sin and, and striving to do good, loving their sibling, striving to honor their parents. That's due to God's grace alone. And so you praise Him and you bless His name. And so we see that in many ways, even when we look at this difficult doctrine of total depravity, it, it serves our comfort, it serves our joy, and it serves to bring all the glory to God, just as we know it should be. And then one final word. There may be some here this morning who say to themselves, well, if I'm still unregenerated, well, then I'm doomed because I'm totally depraved and I can't choose to be saved. That's an abuse and misuse of what we've considered this morning. The call that comes to all of us is this, repent. Repent of your sin, repent of your pride, humble yourself, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, all who call on his name, all who come to him and believe on him, shall be saved. And then when you are saved, your eyes will be opened and you will see that indeed was the work of God in me, drawing me unto Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for these truths that we would not confess by nature, but in Thy mercy and grace Thou hast given them to us so that we might know our comfort more fully in Jesus Christ and recognize Him as our complete Savior and recognize and see Thee more clearly as the God of abounding grace and mercy. Lord, to Thee be the praise for all our salvation. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives so that we walk in the comfort of who we are 
belonging to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.